0: Today, for the first time in nearly 300 episodes of the Future of Agriculture podcast, we're revisiting three founders that we featured on episodes years ago to ask, where are they now? Michael Gilbert says Semios has expanded from tool to platform.
1: We were you know, hyper-focused on our core pest management product over you know, the first eight years of our business and just made it and just streamlined it and got it clean. And from there, built on the platform.
0: Tony Chen says Manolin is riding the wave of global interest in oceans, food, and regeneration.
2: What we have seen is kind of a big change in what's happening in the ocean. The kind of increased focus as far as what the oceans play from a carbon sequestration standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, from a food production standpoint, all of these industries are actually tied,
0: right? And aquaculture kind of sits within that. Chris Raleigh says Harvest Returns has
3: continued to hone their focus on niche investment opportunities in agriculture. One is the indoor, the controlled environment agriculture. Another is grass-fed livestock. And then we have recently, in the past year, begun to do some early stage ag tech companies. And then I put the rest at kind of specialty crops.
0: All three of these founders join us today to update us on what's happened since their 2018 appearances on this show and provide insights into what it takes to grow a company in agriculture. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Uh, My name is Tim Hammerich, and every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. It's around the new year, and during this time of year, I often like to dedicate an episode to sort of synthesizing insights from the previous year's episodes. I did that last year with uh, number 238, which was Five Barriers Limiting Ag Tech, and the year before with episode 186, which was uh, Five Trends for the Future of Agriculture. Today's episode, though, is a little bit of a different spin on that same approach, Rather than, though, looking back at the episodes from 2021, I'm actually looking back to three different episodes from 2018, and I chose three that had founders of startups to ask the question, where are they now? What's going on with these founders and these startups, and what's happened since we featured them back in 2018? This is something that a few of you have requested over the years, but I've just never found the time to actually get it done, and so decided to do that today for today's episode. It was actually a lot of fun for me to catch up with each of these founders, and I think we produced some very helpful insights for anyone who's entrepreneurial in agriculture. So those three founders are Michael Gilbert of Semios, Tony Chen of Manolin, and Chris Raleigh of Harvest Returns. No need to go back and re-listen to those old episodes before listening to today's, although you might want to after you listen. Um, I'm going to kind of update you on those old episodes and the background information you'll need along the way. But you're going to kind of get three episodes in one today. It's kind of a three for one, I think. Um, There's some really great nuggets, some great wisdom of the entrepreneurial journey, and I highly encourage you to stick around for all three. But we'll start with Michael Gilbert. He's the founder and CEO of Semios. Michael has a PhD in organic chemistry and spent the first part of his career in new chemical development before becoming fascinated by solving problems in orchards. We featured Semios back in episode 108 as part of our sustainability at scale series. And at the time, he talked about how their company established themselves in orchard crops like cherries, almonds, and apples by offering internet-connected devices for insect pest detection and mating disruption. And we spent a lot of the interview talking about that success that they'd had in the first eight years. Uh, Focused on pest management, and that's really the foundation that they have since built upon into now what is a very impressive platform that we're going to talk all about. But here's a clip from that first interview.
1: And so when we put together this IoT network, on the one hand, we're collecting data for when the insect is present. We also networked uh, individual pheromone release mechanisms that are aerosol-based that we can then trigger on our network and deliver pheromones on demand. And so what it's enabled us to do is we can now deliver pheromones in the orchard exactly when the insect is flying. Therefore, you know, using this, this expensive ingredient more effectively and ultimately getting better control and allowing growers to start pulling back on the
0: insecticides. Back then in 2018, Semios was already a well-known company in agriculture and very reputable when it came to pest management. But Michael was already thinking about how to build on this success by adding other types of sensors to their IoT network.
1: So we focus on uh, several different risks that farmers are trying to manage. Uh, the four main ones being insects, disease, irrigation, and frost or chill. And uh, for these types of pain points or risk management, uh, what we found is the best way to understand that risk is to install a Internet of Things or IoT solution, which essentially connects these orchards onto a single network. And we then collect data every 10 minutes from throughout the orchard. And today we have over half a million sensors collected from these orchards, reporting every 10 minutes. And when we analyze the data, we can then tell the grower in real time what types of risks are they dealing with now and what is the next step in terms
0: of managing it. Since I interviewed back in 2018, which is where those first two clips came from, Semios has grown tremendously. They've made significant strides towards offering an integrated platform that is a central piece to effective orchard management. And this year, the company also announced their first, second, and third acquisitions, which we will definitely talk about in this update. So here is my Where Are They Now? mini-interview with Semios CEO Michael Gilbert.
1: Yeah, so in the past few years, we've been able to work with some of our largest customers and talking to them about kind of roadmap. Where do they see the industry going? And we started asking them, what are the, some of the key players they see that we should be talking to in some way, shape, or form? And that ultimately is what led to the three acquisitions we made this year. So, folks who we thought were well aligned with our roadmap that brought like some kind of synergy to the customer and then we had discussions and eventually went through the
0: acquisition process. And that conversation, you know, with some of your customers, that's kind of an interesting approach, right? I mean, I would imagine it has a natural filter. Are you asking them for other services they're using or other services they're looking for? How does that conversation go with the customer?
1: Yeah, typically, you know, we look for what other decisions or data are factored in when they're making decisions around farm management. So if you're doing pest management, Do you think about water management? Do you think about disease management? Do you think about farm management? And if so, which companies do they find have been the most successful in providing that data to them? And then then we try and find as a way we can bring the data sets together. Because oftentimes, these decisions are not fully optimized if they're made in a silo. Like if you're a separate, you can sometimes have negative impact. And so if you can bring those together, typically has a better outcome for the farmer.
0: And, you know, obviously any acquisition is going to be additive in some way. Maybe it's a customer base, a new technology that opens doors. How do you determine, though, a more, I hate to use the term because it's a bit overused, but a more synergistic result of an acquisition to say, okay, this isn't just additive. This is actually going to create new value on both sides. And, you know, let's say it's semios and AgWorld, or whatever the case may be. How do you forecast that, I guess, is my question.
1: Yeah, I would say that in most cases, acquisitions are done primarily driven by either shareholders or accountants trying to, you know, if we have companies come together, we can reduce overhead and get, you know, a better profile, or they need to somehow add that new market, which is most common the case. In that case, they're trying to find synergies afterwards. It's kind of an after the fact. With us, these are completely driven by the customers wanting to have these products put together. The most clear synergy is going to be when those data sets are presented side by side there are better benefits to the customer. So that's always been the primary driver. It's also the driver for all of our partnerships. So we partner with a bunch of companies as well and allow them to connect to our customers, allow the datasets to also flow through our platform.
0: And for, with something like this, I, I, I won't focus the entire time just on these three acquisitions, but I do have some questions that I'm just curious about. What's the timetable to actually bundle them together so that a customer you know, is paying for one service from Semios and they're getting all these various tools at their disposal
1: yeah there's a few different levels to the integrations one is like the sales process like how many sales reps do they need to speak to to get the products and so we're trying to streamline that so it comes together then there's the integration of the actual products so do the actual interfaces come together there's the data flow and there's a timeline for that and then we also work on a timeline for the field services and maintenance so One of the reasons why companies want to also work with Semios is that we have a large established field services team that can go out and install equipment and service it. And so then how do we get those new products onto essentially the platform we use internally to service equipment and use tickets? And so there's different levels of those integrations and they all have their own timelines. I think one of the ones that becomes obviously of interest to our customers is going to be when do these data sets come together? When am I going to have that one login for everything? That's always our goal. For now, we work a lot on sharing data sets and you can still access either platform, but some of those key learnings come together in one visual.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about that because, I mean, that takes more than just a tool, right? That takes a platform, really, to do all that. When in Semios's evolution, did you think of it as, you know, the transition from a tool to a platform?
1: That's a good question. So I think for the first part of our business, you know, we were primarily selling pest management as a tool and as a product. And it's when our customers started seeing how the infrastructure we put in, namely the the wireless network and the field services teams, and they were asking us, well, why can't we leverage that to do more on our farm? Because you already show up on the farm, you're driving onto a field every month, and surely there's ways we can get you to work to do more for us because, I mean, it's just more efficient. And so that sort of driving that whole thought process of like, okay, well, when we think about a platform, you always think about like, what are the key things I can do well that can be leveraged across different product categories? And so things we do well are wireless networks on farms and maintaining and installing them and big data. So these are things we look at, how can we leverage that to then drive ultimately more value for our customers?
0: And it seems like a lot of players in ag tech have wanted to make this leap from tool to platform and have struggled to do so. You know, I would say Semios is among the most successful examples I can think of. You know, we had VAS in the dairy industry on on our podcast before, and I think they've kind of done it in dairy, but very few outside of those two examples can I think of that that have really kind of made that leap. Where do you think companies often get stuck in trying to do that?
1: I think what we're seeing is... The platform seems to be the the ultimate goal for a lot of folks because of where we've seen that happen in social media and other other industries. And I think some folks start with a platform in mind, and that often struggles. And I think what we're seeing now in in different industries is that often whoever wins the platform starts with an amazing product that people love. And that's how they leverage that and eventually go on to become a platform. So if you start too early on the platform, And don't build out your product, then you're gonna get stuck. And it can be tempting. I think investors are pushing also young startups to go become a platform because it's a bigger sell. But if you don't have that existing product, it's not gonna work. And we were, you know, hyper focused on our core pest management product for the first eight years of our business and just made it and just streamlined it and got it clean and from there built on the platform.
0: And maybe talk to us about the fundraising side of that. So you're focused on not the biggest niche in agriculture in terms of acres by any means, you know, on these permanent crops. And you were hyper focused on one tool. How did you get the investors to see the vision? It seems clearer today than it probably did, you know, five plus years ago. How did you get investors on board with that vision instead of them just saying, wait a minute, this is a pest management tool for very low acreage relative to field crops, I guess. How'd you get them to go on the journey with you?
1: Yeah, most savvy investors will will look for uh, products that have a nice niche. And so they they understand exactly where they're selling into, the clear value proposition. And so they often actually want to see a smaller market first, own it, and then expand. And so people who go after the big markets at the beginning, you know, they're just going into a seat that's full of sharks. And it's going to be really tough to make a name for yourself. So typically, I was able to convince them that there was relatively... Few players in this marketplace, and we felt we had a good offering, and so we would demonstrate that first, and now take it into broader crops
0: and offerings. As you all do kind of expand and become the platform, I know you already, because you just mentioned it, integrate with a lot of different partners. That's probably only going to increase as you all become sort of a hub for these other technologies. How do you handle that from a support standpoint? Does your support group get inundated with calls that may be about technologies that actually aren't yours but because they're Semios customers you want to take care of them or does that present issues kind of in that regard
1: Good question and we haven't fully ironed that out typically we have minimum requirements for our partners to be able to partner on our platform because obviously it's going to represent us as well you know we're going to be the face of the customer and so we work with our partners and typically we do that by kind of slowly increasing our exposure so get some experience them for one season understand what to look for what are the telltale signs and then continue on that. Thankfully, we are in the field on a regular basis so we can check on equipment, see how it's reporting. And we have ways internally as well that we've done for years to monitor how the equipment's running. So it's something we, we work with our partners with. And like I said, oftentimes they are asking, you know, distribution partners who have very little experience in technology to support their products in their classic go-to-market strategy. So it's a big struggle for them we're trained to do this. We know how to do this. We know how to incorporate into our, our field technicians apps, how they monitor equipment. And so typically, if anyone's going to be able to monitor third-party equipment, I would think that we'd be at the front of the stack because of how we built our team. It's been our focus of the company since day one.
0: As we wrap up here, Michael, if we're having this conversation again, three years from now, as you project out, how does the company look different? And you know, what's your vision for the coming years for SEMIOS?
1: Yeah, so I think over the next few years, we're going to see a lot more partnerships coming into play here. I think a lot more, not just on the agronomy side, so not just in the field, but also pre-harvest and post-harvest. So how does the data flow from the farm and how they're running the field to other partners and other ways of of improving the outcome for our customers? So I would look to see a lot more partners, and uh, we will obviously work on the integrations of our current sister companies, so there's now four of us together. And uh, we're going to build that out and just keep on running and going into new markets. Obviously, we're in Europe now, we're in Australia, New Zealand, and so that's expanding. But what I love is that whether you're growing, you know, apples or almonds in the U.S. or in, in Australia or Europe, often the the issues they come are the same or similar, and so we can leverage that to help all the growers essentially get a better outcome.
0: Well, I highly encourage you to go back after listening to today's episode to listen to number 108, which is a much deeper dive. Uh, into Semios, as well as into some of Michael's background. For now, though, we're going to shift gears to our next update, which is from aquaculture data and analytics company Manolin. I spoke with co-founder and CEO Tony Chen back around the same time as Michael about their company, which at the time provided tools for ocean salmon farmers. They were in the middle of going through the hatch accelerator, and we included them in our accelerating ag tech series. That accelerator helped them with customer discovery and validation in Norway. Back on that episode, Tony talked about what compelled him as an MIT grad in computer science to go to work in aquaculture.
4: Um, Aquaculture, I quickly recognized, was one of the larger problems when you think globally about the food production system problems that are happening, Um, a need for sustainable protein, a need to save the oceans. Um, I quickly recognized that there was a huge intersection here and that there was a big problem to be solved.
0: And that problem to be solved had to do with helping leverage data to improve fish health in ocean farming systems, starting with salmon farmers. And one thing you'll probably notice along the way here is that my sound quality is a little bit better today than it was back in 2018. It took a little bit of time for me to refine my process, but forgive some background noise here. Tony did our first interview in 2018 live from the Chicago O'Hare Airport.
4: One, let's provide farmers with the right information at the right time. So we're talking about data-driven insights to help them optimize productions. Um, But we believe that this data can be even more useful when you think about stabilizing an industry like aquaculture that doesn't have loans, that doesn't have insurance. Many of the farmers, when we think globally, can't invest in the future. They can't invest in new technologies or new funding arms to scale their businesses because it's too unpredictable. Health is the most important thing when it comes to aquaculture globally. Farms lose about 30 percent of their yield every year to unexpected illnesses or issues.
0: Okay, so since that time, Tony and his team have found ways to leverage data and analytics to help their customers reduce the amount of fish they are losing and improve overall fish health. As you're about to hear in this update, they've expanded beyond the original problem of sea lice and salmon and have started playing a role in regenerating the ocean, just like other areas of agriculture are focused on regenerating soil. So here's the update three years later from Manolin CEO, Tony Chen.
2: We've expanded now to cover more diseases. So not only parasites and what's traveling in the water, but other issues that can arise for a farmer. So we predict over diseases like pancreas disease, ISA, and together these drivers accumulate for much more than 17% of the impact. But what we've discovered is when you look at animal health, you know it's more than just one particular factor. So we've included more and more in our predictions now.
0: Very cool. And you had such a great story about, you know, traveling around Norway and and camping and, and getting customer validation. Now that you've got a few years under your belt, what are you seeing as far as ROI for these farmers for having to ask them not just give you feedback on the software, but ask them for money for the tool? And what are they seeing in terms of returns?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we discovered, I mean, when you and I first chatted a few years ago, we just entered the salmon market, right? We were hearing about problems and you know, on one side, problems have continued. Regulation is still cracking down on improving the sustainability of the industry, but we've seen production costs continue to increase. Fish health has still continued to suffer. So farmers are even more kind of trying to figure out how to improve their farms. So that's the return on investment. Pretty much every customer that's come on board, we have tangible proof at how they're mortality benchmarks against their previous historical returns and how they're making better decisions for their farms. That's been kind of the key driver for our platform.
0: And this is probably a naive question because I know so little about salmon farming. How do they measure mortality? I mean, I understand what mortality is, but I mean, in a huge cage in a big ocean, how do you really appreciate what the mortality is.
2: Absolutely. I mean, these are big pens, a lot of fish, you know, and it's actually a pretty simple equation. When fish do die, and unfortunately that is an activity that happens, they either sink to the bottom or they float to the top. So the farms typically actually monitor it every day. So we get daily mortality numbers at the bottom. They have hoses that will suck this fish up back to the surface. And then they actually count them and diagnose them with any sort of health issues on the surface. You'll have employees go out there, you know, with Nets and bring them up, but they're doing these activities every single
0: day. Okay. So they kind of have a daily score on how their software is working to sort of predict and manage for these health issues. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And, and that's part of the the data that we get to access is looking at, you know, this granular data sets and seeing if there's changes, you know, fish vets will come in and diagnose issues. And one of the things that we built into our platform is a notification system. So, you know, certain diseases you have to notify to the government, notify through the supply chain. Others are more just within their own companies. But right now, we actually send out area notifications for non-notifiable diseases. So if one farmer is starting to experience issues, the next farmer downstream will get a notification automatically
0: from us at the point of detection. Okay. I, I figured there had to be something like that. All right. Well, what about you know, your journey as a company? Have you all raised money and how has that been for you?
2: So we ended up raising a seed round through a couple of investors. This was roughly a year and a half ago or so. So it really enabled us to scale and grow the team. So right now we are seven folks. We have an office here in Denver. At the time when you and I last chatted, I was bouncing back and forth. We had a team in Norway, but I was kind of the other soul kind of bouncing around. But now we have an established office here in Denver. So that's the US base
0: and then Bergen and a few employees over there from the fish health side. Okay. And when we spoke last, you were going through the hatch accelerator. So maybe after you've had some time in the river mirror there, talk about that experience and if that was valuable for the company and if so, how?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think it played in a really critical role for us in those beginning days of getting into the industry you know we we talked about we thought of ourselves as a slightly different startup you know we're going into a old school kind of tight knit agricultural industry and we came in as two computer science guys from the states and just showed up on the coast so being able to break through that initial barrier you know having an accelerator that already had ties into the industry and some validation you know helped us a ton hatch has been a big supporter of the work we do and you know we attribute those few months over there to really helping us with the growth that we've experienced
0: it- You know, I deal a lot in kind of like specialty crop agriculture. So like, you know, crops that have very few acres relative to like corn and soy, such as blueberries, for example, it can sometimes be hard for a startup to raise money if they're focused on the blueberry market because it's pretty small. Is that the case in aquaculture? And if so, you know, what has been your experience in investors' interest in the space?
2: Absolutely. I mean, things have changed a lot over the last three to four years or so when you talk about ocean investing, but we got a lot of that similar type of feedback this sounds like a niche market. This is a specialty crop. This doesn't scale at the global size. And when you look at salmon farming, right, it's so far advanced compared to what you think of when you talk about ocean aquaculture in general. So we've definitely seen that. But what we have seen is kind of a big change in what's happening in the ocean. The kind of increased focus as far as what the oceans play from a carbon sequestration standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, from a food production standpoint, all of these industries are actually tied, right? And aquaculture kind of sits within that. So we We've seen a much different realization as to how solutions in the ocean can be developed and how much salmon farming, for one, kind of paints that picture. I mean, we see ourselves growing across all kind of coastal species as far as a scale standpoint, and we have a game plan for how the work that we do can expand into those worlds. But I I will say, I mean, I think you're completely correct as far as, you know, they're not necessarily small crops, but they are kind of viewed that way.
0: Yeah. It's big business when you add it all up, but as far as like a total addressable market, sometimes it can't look as attractive as something like, you know, corn or wheat, I imagine. Are we talking about regenerative aquaculture? Is that a thing, you know, as far as like Fish farming practices that can help to sequester carbon and clean up the oceans. Absolutely, I mean, I think
2: there's a couple of different lenses you can look at, and it's an interesting question to ask in regenerative in in many different sense. So one is regenerating, you know, the ocean ecosystems and helping those rebound and respond to historical levels. I think another perspective to look at is just from a food production standpoint. I mean, one of the things the salmon companies like to advertise is their carbon footprint compared to something like cattle or pork. When you add everything together. So there's different lenses, but from the restorative side, there's definitely been a lot more activity and you know, from what we've seen, right? You almost have so many different organizations whether it's NGOs, politics or even business looking at the space. We need to define what regenerative looks like and agriculture I think has set a great precedent as are we looking for improvements being made to farming practices, cover crops, regenerative agriculture, are we looking to it to get back to, you know, the wild west of kind of ecosystems? There's different levels of this, and aquaculture has similar activities. I mean, I can tell you, farmers can always improve their operations. There's stuff that we can do that are net positive. When you look at you know, carbon sequestration, there's activities farmers can do. We actually look towards agriculture as a big kind of you know, inspiration as to how this can progress. But I will say the interest has been at an all-time high as far as what needs to be done in the ocean.
0: All right. Off-the-wall question here. This Seaspiracy documentary. I'm sure it's been a topic of conversation in your circles. Uh, What's your take on it? Anything you want to share with us about it?
2: To put it bluntly, I think it's got a lot of missing facts in there. And I think there is a positive impact as far as a lot of the response I've seen from it has been people calling out the incorrectness of it or, or some of the pieces that have been over marketed in a sense. But there has been a lot of communication and discussion kind of following off of what are the actual facts, because I think that's one of the pieces that I've come to learn more and more about is when you look at aquaculture and the ocean, there's a lot of pictures that can be put up to describe one story. I think that particular documentary misses a lot of the key facts of the impact of seafood on the global side of things. And I mean, their thesis is we should not eat any seafood. We should just stop eating seafood, period. The realities of that, I think, are far from it when you look at it from a global scale. So it's definitely ruffles some feathers, but I mean, it has spurred a lot of conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, I think as long as people can look at it as conversation rather than just, you know, on off switch with eating seafood, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot more nuance to it than that. Well, you know, let's talk about the future and, and where Mandolin goes from here. Let me throw out something that I'm speculating, and then you can redirect me. You know, I speculate that fish health is the immediate ROI near term problem that helps to get farmers onto your software. Longer term, there's probably some other interesting things such as you know, food companies that want to know the data behind their supply chain, if they're using salmon or fish and want to be able to use it for their own sort of marketing purposes, be it carbon or be it, um, you know, impact on oceans. I would think you're very much in a good position to help farmers capitalize on those potential premiums as they might come up in the future. Now you can redirect me.
2: No, I think you hit it pretty well. That's exactly the thesis that we have as far as where this data goes. You can see, you know, everyone's interested in it, right? It's not just the supply chain. I mean, in the aquaculture world, regulation plays such a big part because it's in such an underdeveloped space and NGOs are definitely looking at it very closely and also the kind of supply chain and the service companies. We see ourselves supporting a lot of those activities. When you look at, you know, an Indigo Ag or an FBN, they've kind of set the precedent for how this network data really drives value towards farmers and kind of their member companies. And we see the same thing happening from our side. We want to be able to offer better services to the farmers, extract this data in a way that helps the industry grow in a sustainable manner.
0: Okay. Thank you so much to Tony Chen of Manolin for that update. If you'd like, you can go back to listen to the original interview with Tony back in episode 120. We'll include a link to all of these in the show notes. Our final Where Are They Now guest, also from 2018, is Chris Raleigh, CEO and co-founder of Harvest Returns. They're an agricultural crowdfunding platform. Our first episode with Chris was early in the company's development. I think they'd only listed maybe a few deals on the platform at that time. I spoke to him about his successful first career in the military and successful second career in commercial real estate. And I asked him what made him want to choose agriculture for his next focus.
5: Every place I go, and I've been to some really desolate and war-torn places in Africa and the Middle East and Afghanistan and places like that. Every place I go, people are growing something. People are raising livestock because people have to eat. So it's agriculture is really ubiquitous, but it's not, you know, as an investment class, it's not something that the average person really thinks about. And that's just these ideas kind of uh, came together in my head to, to make agriculture part of people's Uh, it already is part of people's daily lives, but it's to make it part of people's financial lives.
0: So this led Chris to start Harvest Returns, which brought crowdfunding to farming. Chris talked about in that first episode, the dozens of platforms that already were successful in doing this in commercial real estate and saw farming assets and businesses as similar in a lot of ways.
5: So at its most simplest, what we are is a online platform for investing in agriculture. Agriculture Uh, obviously a very old, important industry. And what we're doing is combining that with equity crowdfunding, which is pretty much the newest way to raise capital. And we enable people to come onto the platform, look at investments and invest with a small amount of money and get uh, more connected to the food system, more connected to agriculture and diversify their portfolios is something that most people generally don't think about when they think about investing.
0: At the time, in 2018, Harvest Returns was really focused on specialty crops. They have continued to stay away from staple Midwest row crops, but they have found some other niches to focus on, particularly grass-fed livestock, controlled environment ag, and even early-stage ag tech startups. Chris elaborates on all of these categories in this update over three years after our original interview.
3: Yeah, at first we were fairly opportunistic in the deals that we had, and and now we're Much more selective in trying to sort of shape our portfolio for the kind of deals. And we're looking at several verticals that we started focusing on. One is the indoor, the controlled environment, agriculture. And I can get into the reasons we like that. Uh, Another is grass-fed livestock. And we've done a number of those deals. And then we have recently, in the past year, began to do some early-stage ag tech companies. Closed a few of those this year. And then I put the rest at kind of specialty crops. The one sort of crops that we really don't do... For a number of reasons, our commodity type crops. And the reasons include there's many other places to invest in those. And also, you know, it, it helps differentiate us. And we we like sort of the transformational aspects of the specialty verticals that we've chosen.
0: Yeah. And now with you know so many deals kind of under your belt, you probably have some really interesting data about sort of what has worked well and what may not work as well. Is there anything that has particularly surprised you at how well? Sort of the investment has worked out?
3: So that would probably be our, our grass-fed livestock. What we've actually done is created a investment structure that collateralizes grass-fed cattle. And we've done a number of those deals. And it's basically an income play. It produces yield while helping these grass-fed producers to grow their herds, um, scale their herds more rapidly by having short-term sorts of notes. And our investors like it because you know, depending on how we structure them, they're fairly short-term exits, and they also produce that nice cash flow, and there's security there.
0: Interesting. So in that case, the investors are not investing in the land itself, but in the cattle?
3: That is correct. So the the cattle and, and the, the care and upkeep of the cattle until they grow into production size.
0: Very, very cool. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense just in the overarching trend of you know, grass-fed beef kind of really having taken off. Talk about the controlled environment ag stuff. You know, I obviously it would make sense to me that that would be a large, you know, upfront investment and they would need the money and it may not fit traditional ag lending models. Are those big drivers or what else is driving the interest in the controlled environment ag from an investor perspective?
3: So, as you know very well and your listeners know, there's been a lot of investment in indoor agriculture in all sizes the past you know, three or four years um, where you have some unicorns coming out of this companies like app harvest and arrow farms and bright farms and very big big companies that are taking sort of the top-down approach to investment we're working with in some cases large-scale independent uh, greenhouses and vertical producers and in other cases very small independent operators that are doing sort of the more urban vertical farms and we we've kind of broken the category up into those two niches and and There's a lot of reasons. We believe very strongly in putting capital towards uh, helping increase the diversification, decentralization of ag production. And so, what I mean by that is, as you know, most of the leafy greens we eat are produced in one little Salinas Valley, California. It's big, but it's a very centralized form of production. And people are discovering more and more that their food chain can be vulnerable to network disruptions. But there's also things like uh, scarcity of water and labor that are driving some of that food production to be created in other ways. And so the decentralization is taking advantage of the local food movement, producing food closer to where it's consumed. And along with that, controlled environment agriculture has many positives from an environmental standpoint. Besides reducing the food miles it takes to get food from the producer to the consumer, you're also reducing food waste. You're putting healthy, nutritious food the the fresher it is. Generally there's more nutrition involved, but there's less water usage, less pesticide usage and herbicides and don't have to deal with water run out and you can produce a higher yield in a smaller space. Now obviously those are the pros of of indoor ag and there's a lot of cons to it, but we're trying to find the the innovators in the space and working with those small to mid market producers.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, one question I've always had with it and I'm sure it's something that you've had to address At length, it's just the unit economics. Uh, You know, selling software is interesting because you don't have much cost of goods after a certain point and you can always increase the price if it's good software. If it's lettuce, you got to compete with a super efficient system in Salinas, even though that you have a lot of food miles there that are associated with it. So, how have you found that the successful companies have figured out the unit economics?
3: Yeah, so that is still an area that is being discovered, I think, as we speak, in, in not just in the companies we're invested in, but all the other companies that are, I'll say experimenting, because it, it really is an experiment at this point. It's very early stages. But those economics, I think, are, are slowly shifting given the you know, transportation costs and labor costs and other aspects of the supply chain you know, that have kind of created that very centralized production. And the companies that we're working with, they are you know, working towards those efficiencies. One thing we found out is almost every one of these projects you know they're very capital intensive at first it's not just buying a piece of land and you know putting some pivots on it this is you buy a piece of land you do all the permitting you undertake a, a multi year construction project and those tend to be over time and over budget and we're we're finding that so they're very capital intensive but once they're actually up and running they're producing vegetables primarily very efficiently and it's almost like a utility sort of model where yeah it costs a lot to build a a new nuclear power plant or natural gas plant or whatever. But once they're up and running, they're a pretty efficient way to produce electricity. And same thing with ag production.
0: And it sounded like with the grass-fed beef example, you see your return when the beef is sold, which would be kind of a quick turnaround, almost like an annual crop. How does it work with some of these controlled environment ag projects? And I'm sure it runs the gamut, but I'm just curious if you could maybe give us an example of when an investor would would get their money back.
3: Yeah, so that's generally equity investments on the controlled environment side. It's just like investing in any sort of, probably the most comparable thing is commercial real estate. I've got a background in that, and that's the way some of these deals are structured. But like I said, there's a a upfront capital cost and development period. Just like if you're building a new, say, apartment building, and then once it's up and running, there's cash flows. And those early investors are able to get their money out either by refinancing the project and cashing them out at a targeted rate of return. Or by just the pure cash from the financing. And there's also the possibility of typical sort of liquidation, liquidity event, merger and acquisition, where cash flow is stabilized, to indoor ag project, especially on a larger scale, is sold to like a private equity group or that sort of thing. Our first one of these we did is a company called Kentucky Fresh Harvest. And they're producing uh, various varieties of tomatoes. And they're in Sanford, Kentucky. And we were a small part of that large project but our investors... looking forward to an exit hopefully in the next uh, year or so.
0: Excellent. Tell us about the early stage ag tech part of things. Uh, We got a lot of people in the ag tech industry or or interested in ag tech that listen. When did you first get into that side of things? And I'm curious how that's gone.
3: Yeah. So about a probably 2020, about a year, over a year ago, we started getting approached. Well, maybe, you know, even earlier than that, we probably been approached by some ag tech and we were probably dismissive because, you know, we were still f- focused on the production side and, and I hadn't really made the shift to like, okay, look at the overall food value chain. And obviously agtech on the input side is, is a huge part of that. And so we got approached by some of these companies and then, I don't know, I guess it was late last year. We had one, a couple across our desk and they were very interesting. And so we've done a couple of raises and I'd say several raises actually for ag tech we closed a company. I like to call it cattle tech, Caltech. We've done a couple of those, but we closed a company called uh, Precision Livestock Technologies, who's actually here in Texas. They've got a really interesting use of uh, AI and machine vision to help kind of improve the sustainability of and efficiency of, of feedlots. We did a one called High Plains Nutrition. They are kind of a hemp-based animal feed additive company. So, there's some science involved. And then Recently closed one agrology. We helped them raise over eight hundred thousand dollars. They are a precision ag sensor company, and so these check sizes that we're writing turns out they're about the same size as a a seed round that an ag VC might write. So, you know, four hundred thousand to a million dollars, kind of in that range, and. Our sponsors like it because, you know, one, it, it kind of exposes them to the crowd. They're not just dealing with a single VC. They're getting due diligence from all of our 8,000 plus users on a platform. So they get questions and hard questions and have to speak in front of them. And and it's not just, uh, you know, one-on-ones with a VC. So they get some feedback on their, their raise and their product. But I think it's also just a, a good way to diversify the capitalization of these early stage ag companies, ag tech companies.
0: Well, let's kind of think about the future. It's been about three years or so, I think, since our our first episode together. Uh, If you were to project out another three years, how do you think things might look different for harvest returns? And I know international is something we mentioned in that first episode. Is that something that you see as becoming more and more of an opportunity for you?
3: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, a couple of things. We have grown organically up to this point the past five years, meaning I invested some initial capital in this company. We never really did a traditional VC round and that's worked for us. We took on a couple of angel investors. So, you know, unlike a lot of, you know, other platforms, we we haven't done those big seed rounds. So one of the changes is here, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but very soon we're going to be launching our own sort of seed round on the harvest returns platform. So we are kind of putting our money where our mouth is and, and letting our investors invest to get a piece of our company So that will help us to expand our investor base, do some improvements to the platform, those sorts of things. So we expect to expand our growth here in the next uh, 12 to 24 months based on that raise you know, one thing that that is interesting is is we're profitable and we've been cash flow positive since 2019, and I intend to continue that. It's it's not necessarily the traditional growth model of an ag tech fintech company, but it's something I strongly believe in in, in building a durable, long lasting, profitable company, and not just you know making a quick buck for an exit. So yes, international is important. Some of the proceeds will be going to expand into areas and explore partnerships and things like that. There are literally dozens of overseas platforms, just like Harvest Returns in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Europe that um, present partnerships or potential for partnerships. So we're, we're thinking about that. And we're just thinking about better ways to bring quality deals to our investor base, but also um, help transform the food system to produce a more sustainable More resilient, um, stronger value chain, and profitable for our producers.
0: Okay, that first interview with Chris was clear back in episode 95, if you want to go back and listen to that one. And once again, we'll have all of those linked in the show notes. And this is probably a good time just to remind all of you that nothing we talk about here on the future of agriculture is intended to be investment advice. And please make sure that you always do your own due diligence to fully understand the risks of anything you invest in. And that goes for whether it's on Harvest Returns Platform or anywhere else. Well, that's it for this Where Are They Now? experimental episode. What do you think? I would sure love to hear some feedback on this format. It certainly takes a lot of time to go back and re-listen to these episodes, re-interview the people, put it all together for you in a way that makes sense. And uh, if it was worth it or if it wasn't worth it, either way, I'd love to hear from you. Tim at aggrad.com or you can always tweet me. I'm at Tim Hammerich. Well, that's it for this week. I want to wish each and every one of you a very happy new year. I know these past uh, two years or so have been tough for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But in my opinion, there's no downside to entering 2022 with hope and optimism to make it a great one. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.